It's NPR Day at the Fair and Politics Friday at the Fair. I'm Mike Mulcahy. Coming up this hour, the Republican nominee for governor, Scott Jensen, will be here to talk about his plans for Minnesota schools and more. Jensen is locked in a tight race with DFL Governor Tim Walls. Then DFL Secretary of State Steve Simon will come by to talk about Minnesota elections and voting and his plans if he wins a third term. Then it's our team of reporters covering the campaign and state politics, including the newest member of the NPR reporting staff. What have they been hearing from the candidates and from you about the big issues as the final phase of campaign 2022 gets underway? We're live at the Minnesota State Fair. It's Politics Friday. Stay with us. We'll get started right after the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Louise Schiavone. The Labor Department reports that U.S. employers added 315,000 new jobs in August. The unemployment rate ticked up slightly to 3.7 percent. NPR's Alina Seljuk has more. The job gains in August were driven by hiring in healthcare, professional services, and retail. The jobs market remains tight, though growth has slowed a bit from July when employers had added more than half a million jobs, recovering all the jobs lost in early 2020 at the start of the pandemic. The labor market has been holding strong in the face of high inflation, which the Federal Reserve has been trying to combat by raising interest rates. And hiring has continued to pace amid signs of slowing economic growth. New claims for unemployment last week fell for the third week in a row as job vacancies outnumbered people looking for work almost two to one. Alina Selyuk, NPR News, Washington. The world's largest developed economies have announced that they will implement a price cap on Russian oil. As NPR's Rezvani reports, the G7 plan aims to limit Russia's revenue from oil sales as Russia's war on Ukraine continues. G7 finance ministers say they plan to ban the insurance and financing of shipments of Russian oil and petroleum products unless they are sold under a yet-to-be-announced price cap. But there's skepticism this price cap will really penalize Russia as intended. Amrita Sen, chief oil analyst with Energy Aspects, says the plan won't work without the support of major buyers of Russian oil, like China, India, or Turkey. The G7 statement actually confirms our expectations that they haven't managed to get any commitment from them to participate. Russia's deputy leader Alexander Novak said this week that Russia simply won't sell its oil to countries that go along with the U.S.-led plan to impose a price cap. Arzu Resvani, NPR News, Los Angeles. Federal Emergency Management Administrator Deanne Criswell is slated to visit Jackson, Mississippi today, where a crisis in the city's aging and damaged water system has cut off all supplies to tens of thousands of people. Flooding of the city's Pearl River forced citizens there to wait in lines for water to drink, bathe, cook, and flush toilets. Major General Jansen Boyles oversees Mississippi's National Guard, which has been helping with water distribution. I am bringing soldiers and airmen from all over the state to help with this. Uh, we've got, as the governor said, 600 men and women who will be on the pod sites uh, helping distribute water. We also have tankers at those sites, so we've got non-potable water. President Biden has told reporters his administration is doing everything possible to help and the governor has to act. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention says new COVID-19 booster shots should be available shortly. The latest vaccines designed in part to target the most prevalent Omicron variants. The Dow down 82. This is NPR. 
Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include National Geographic Expeditions, trips with Nat Geo experts to more than 80 worldwide destinations, including safaris, cruises, and train journeys. NatGeoExpeditions.com slash explore. For NPR News in the Twin Cities, I'm Emily Bright. The Southwest Light Rail Transit Line between Minneapolis and the western suburbs has been racked by delays and cost overruns, according to a report released today by the State Office of the Legislative Auditor. The cost to build the 14-and-a-half-mile extension of the Metro Green Line has more than doubled since 2011, and its final opening has been delayed by almost a decade. The Office of the Legislative Auditor also found that about half a billion dollars of the project's budget is not currently funded. Delays and increases in building costs are largely due to a freight rail along the line and a light rail tunnel in Minneapolis's Kenilworth Corridor. The legislative auditor did not look at whether the project's increased costs and delays were justified. Many Minnesota State Fair visitors are ranking abortion as their top political issue. The U.S. Supreme Court in June overturned the federal right to an abortion, and now Minnesotans say they're vetting candidates based on where they stand on abortion policy. Minneapolis resident Jennifer Potter says she plans to vote for Governor Tim Walz because he has vowed to defend abortion access. I feel like abortion is uh, above all the issue that I vote on. It's being called November for a reason. For Sharon Henry of Sauk Rapids, the court's ruling has had the opposite effect. She plans to back candidates who will limit access. I really believe that's not allowing babies to be born, and I think that that is, goes against my moral judgment. State courts have ruled that the Minnesota Constitution guarantees the right to abortion. The Blue Earth County Sheriff's Office is seeking public input on the use of body cameras for deputies. The department is in the process of purchasing the cameras, but a written policy is required to be in place before the technology can be used. Copies of the draft policy are available at the Sheriff's Office. The public can provide feedback by Monday, September 26th by contacting Captain Paul Barda at the Sheriff's Office. For NPR News in the Twin Cities, I'm Emily Bright. Support comes from our partners at Maplewood Toyota, actively supporting the news and community involvement heard here each day. Maplewood Toyota thanks NPR for their continued commitment to diverse programming. Maplewood Toyota, we are who you are. And live from the Minnesota State Fair, this is NPR News. I'm Mike Mulcahy. It's NPR Day at the State Fair. We're at the big stage at Dan Patch Park, which is just west of the ramp to the Grandstand Building. It's a beautiful day to be at the fair, maybe a little bit warm, maybe a little bit sunny, but that's all right. Uh, This hour, we're going to be talking about Minnesota politics. Later, we'll talk to Minnesota Secretary of State Steve Simon about voting and elections, and then to our all-star team of political reporters about how they're covering the campaign this year. But first, joining me on our stage is the Republican candidate for governor, Scott Jensen. Scott Jensen is a family physician, a former state senator. Dr. Jensen, thanks a lot for coming today. Mike, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. You have been at the State Fair, if I'm not mistaken, every day since it started. Every day, and we'll be here every day through Monday. Are you... Are you 
do you get tired of it? Are you energized by it? I'm energized by it because, frankly, this is Minnesotans. I think it's despicable that we're not having debates. I think it's supposed to be an opportunity for people to ask us questions. And I think we've got to be here every day. I do have to say that we, we did intend to have a debate today. The governor, Tim Walls, wouldn't, wouldn't uh, agree to it. But uh, I, I just have to announce we have scheduled a debate for October 28th, Dr. Jensen has accepted. Governor Walls has accepted. We'll broadcast that. You can hear it then. And, 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 I, and Mike, thank you for doing that. I mean, I think all of us realize that at some level, the Walls campaign is weaponizing NPR. And now they can say, see, we're having the debate. Never mind that we will have had early voting for, for a full month. And that in 2020, 50% of the people voted early. So we understand your strategy, Tim. Well, Go you, ahead and hunker down in the basement as long as you possibly can. We get it. You do want a debate, though, right? I mean, you will be there on October 28th. I have said I'll debate anytime. There were four debates by this time of the year in 2018 that Tim Walls participated. So, Mike, I'll be there, but I think we should work harder to have someone debate, set up a debate before we start voting. I mean, really, yep. Minnesotans should be angry. We tried. We tried. I'll say You've that. You've done everything you can, Mike. Um, you put out an education plan this week, a plan for schools. Uh, one of the things you want to do is give parents more choice about where they send their kids. This would include uh, spending tax dollars on schools that... Uh, our private schools, maybe religious schools, basically a voucher system, right? Uh, why is it okay to spend public dollars on private schools? I think people need to ask themselves a question. Why do we have K-12 education? When you ask that question, it's because we know that America is a stronger nation if kids have a foundational education. So it shouldn't matter if it's this school, this school, or this school that's carrying out that mission. What matters is that our kids know how to read, write, and do arithmetic. Why we would discriminate against private schools makes no sense to me at all. What we're asking is, everybody do your job. We don't want any strings attached. What we are actually learning, Mike, is a lot of the best education has actually gone on in homeschooling. And what that reflects is that there's, it's, it's actually about the commitment and actually about the kids' achievement. I have had so many teachers come up to me and say, yes, we need to do the next big idea. The last big idea, maybe, 1980s, Rudy Perpich, open enrollment, post-secondary enrollment options. It's time for a big idea. Our system is failing. We're not getting it done. Let's go ahead, blow open the choices. Let's have... If, if you will, educational savings accounts, vouchers, and let's get this done. We'll do better. Let me ask you a specific question about that, though, because there is a provision in the Minnesota Constitution that says um, the legislature has to set up a system of public schools. And, and there's another uh, provision in there that says money can't go to Christian schools. Uh, do you expect a, a court battle on this if you try to, uh, try to enact it into law? You could try to name the state bird the robin instead of the loon, and you'd have a, you'd have a court battle. For sure, there'll be a court battle. Uh-huh. Uh, do, uh, why, will, why will you prevail with this plan in court? I think we'll prevail because we're going to ultimately we'll pass it through the legislature. But if we have to, we'll pass it before the state as an, as an amendment if we need to. Bottom line is most Minnesotans realize that Minnesota used to be top five. We're not top five anymore. We're underperforming states that we never thought were even competitive with us. We've got to make a change. I mean, Mike, if I diagnose someone with, uh, say, a, d a disease, say cancer, hmm. and we treat them with chemotherapy and it's not helping and they're dying. 
you know, you don't stay with the same chemotherapy regimen. You say, you know what, it's time to make a change. We got to do this because we're trying to save the life of the patient. In this situation, we're trying to save the education of our children so that it gets done, and it's not happening. Are you so saying? Are you saying uh, Minnesota's schools are dying? We're failing. We're failing. No, I'm, yeah, you get my analogy. I'm talking you have to make a change when, when you're failing. And Minnesota schools are failing. We're seeing the education report. You've seen that as well. Mm-hmm. I don't think we need to play games with words. You get the metaphor. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing it said in the plan was uh, you could change low-performing schools into charter schools or private schools. How would that work? I think when you talk about policy in a campaign, What you're trying to do is introduce the concept to people, let them chew on it a little bit, to go laser-focused into the weeds and try to identify bullets A, B, C, D, E. That isn't necessary. The bottom line is there's been a lot of work already done in the House and the Senate. This can be done. We need to do it. If you always look at the problems and why you wouldn't do anything, then you never do anything. Same thing with... Social Security. We're taxing Social Security mm-hmm. twice. We should not be doing that. I've come out and said, let's have a conversation about how does it look for Minnesota not to have a personal income tax. Mm-hmm. If we don't have the hard conversation, we will never know whether or not we could get there. One of the things that uh, that income tax pays for is schools. In fact, absolutely. I think it's $15 billion a year in income taxes come into the state, and uh, it, that's all, you know, goes to schools and social programs. If you did away with the income tax, how would you pay for the schools? Again, I think you have to start looking at the big idea first and say, can we talk about it? Is it possible? We've got a 10 to $12 billion overpayment. Can we reduce our expenses down to the 2017 level? Our, our general uh, fund budget has gone from $30 billion in 2010 to $52 billion, and Governor Walz wants to increase it to about 55 or 56 that's gone up 75% while the average wage earner has gone up 25% during that same 10-year span. We've got to be able to ask ourselves, are we really deploying the dollars into the classroom where they need to go? We're not doing that. So we can, we can cut a lot of fat. We have wasted hundreds of millions of dollars on fraud, waste, and abuse in regards to daycare, in regards to trying to feed the hungry. And now recently we just found out in terms of trying to put a roof over the head of the homeless. It seems like a Minnesota is willing to take a casual attitude about waste, fraud, and abuse like it's no big deal. It is a big deal. If we started to steward our dollars better, we could do so much more. I think that's where we're at, Mike. Uh, let me ask you, uh, since you mentioned uh, big spending projects, a report came out this morning from the legislative auditor. It said that the Southwest light rail transit line has doubled in cost since 2011, it's uh, $500 million short of the money it takes to be completed, it'll take to be completed, and that there's no funding source identified to find that money. If you were the governor, what would you do with that project? I'd try to stop it if I could. I'd ask myself, can we repurpose this? Can we make it a biking walk path? Honestly, what Mike is saying is absolutely right. The reason Minnesota went into this was because the liberals said, how can we turn down a billion dollars from the federal government? It's a $2 billion project. They're paying a billion. We'll pay a billion, and we'll have this really cool thing. What's not working, we've absolutely put cracks in neighboring condominium buildings. We've still got fights going on in terms of the route, and now we're up to $3 billion, and the feds aren't kicking in any more money. But that's not the half of it. The half of it is that every rider on that light rail is going to have to be subsidized. We have light rails right now where every time someone gets on and pays four or five bucks, 
The state's kicking in $24 as a subsidy. If you're going to lose more money along the way, you at some point in time have to ask, is this a good project? We should be doing rapid bus transit. It's a lot more flexible. It's a lot cheaper. When I first came out against this in 2016, I told Minnesotans why it wouldn't work. If you look at New York, Manhattan, they've got a mass transit system subway that works. They've got some 75,000 people per square mile in New York. We've got less than 500 people per square mile in our seven-county area. We don't have the population density, nor do we have the more temperate climate that they've got on the coast. This is a project destined to fail. We're seeing the failure right in front of our eyes, and we're not making the hard decisions to say, what is it going to take to stop this absolute debacle? Let me uh, bring it back to your education plan for a minute here. Um, so would, would your changes make education less expensive? Is that part of the goal here uh, as you do this? Or would you spend the same amount of money? Would it be more money? Have you, have you gamed that out? I don't think there's any interest on our part to necessarily save dollars from the education area. We're just tired of this phrase, let's fully fund education. Nobody's ever told me what fully fund means. We spend 150% of what a lot of states pay per kid, and we're not getting results. And yet we're told, fully fund education. We just got done giving one of the biggest increases to K-12 through in the history of Minnesota, and it evidently isn't enough. Well, we it, was, it was 2.5%, though, wasn't it? it was no, two, and inflation is 9%. It was well, it wasn't 9% when it was given. Uh-huh. It, but bottom line is when we gave the budget 2.5%, it wasn't increased 9% at that time. If you well, look that at was about inflation, though. No, then, but at, at that time, Mike, let's be fair. I, uh, if you go back and look at the data, the CPI was closer to 2, 2.3% at okay. the time. Oh, two and a half, the, huh? Oh, fair, that's fair that's enough, enough, okay? So I don't, th- I don't want to have to quibble. Yeah, I don't either. We went from 25 to 9%. There was no reason in the world that we should take the 9% figure now. At the time they were given 2.5%, that was above the CPI. That was above the inflation rate. We're not getting it done, Mike. What we need to do is we need to ask ourselves, are we okay with the performance? Are the achievement gaps decreasing? If you look at the people who need the help the most, they're getting hurt the worst. Minority communities are absolutely underperforming. True enough. Okay. Their schools were closed. Would you agree, Mike, that uh, Governor Absolutely. Wallace misspoke when he, he said He certainly that? did. He did. Okay, good. Well, I'm glad we can agree on that. And if he were here and he, you were debating, we would ask him about it. Um, no. So Governor Wallace is going to have a debate about this once we got 50% of the voters in Minnesota already voted. Well, I, we'll see about that. We'll see how many people vote early this time. All right. But anyway, uh, let me ask you, uh, you know, you're, everybody's pretty hard on the governor here in, the, in your audience here. Uh, is there anywhere where you agree with Tim Walz? The question That's is, a long is there any place where I can agree with Governor Walz? I think that Governor Walz has a remarkable talent for putting one word after another, and when he's done, you don't know what he said. It's sort of like a word salad, and you're looking for a piece of meat. Okay. <laughs> All right, let me ask you... Uh, Sort of uh, another question. Uh, you, you often talk about things your patients have told you. Absolutely. As, as you're campaigning. Do you intend to keep seeing patients during the campaign? Would you keep seeing patients when you're the governor? Absolutely. If you think I'm going to go immerse myself in the world of broken Minnesota politics, I want some common sense in my life, and I get that from my patients, not St. Paul. 
So you would, you would continue to be a doctor and a governor at, at the same time? I will time. always be a doctor. Mm-hmm. Always. Okay. Um, and uh, as you probably saw in the newspaper this morning, the governor's been pushing you to release your tax forms. Uh, do you have any intention to do that? No. Look at the precedent we're setting. We want people to get involved. We want people to run for public office. If all of a sudden they recognize that, gee, to do that, the stipulation is I've got to release my tax returns. I've got to show that I gave to this organization and this organization, but not to this one and this one. This is voyeuristic on the part of the media. I'll release my tax returns once I'm elected governor. Have at it. But I'm not interested in having the media divert from the important issues of inflation and crime and education in order to to do this spitballing, because that's what's going to happen. And you and I both know. I think some of the presidents in the past, Mike, they've been willing to release their tax returns once they got elected. Fine. Have at it. But before then, I honestly don't think we can trust the media to stay focused on the issues, especially when they're not pushing Tim Walls hard enough to have a debate before the voting starts. All right, Dr. Scott Jensen, the Republican candidate for Minnesota governor, thanks so much for coming today. I hope you'll come again before the 28th. Programming supported by Think Small Minnesota. Assisting communities by targeting resources to early childhood to benefit children most vulnerable and providing recommended proven solutions to ease Minnesota's child care shortage and worst-in-the-nation achievement gaps at thinksmall.org. This is NPR News. I'm Mike Mulcahy. We are live at the Minnesota State Fair today. It's NPR Day. We're at the big stage in Dan Patch Park, which is just west of the grandstand ramp. Unfortunately, when they planned Dan Patch Park, they didn't plant many trees, so there's not a whole lot of shade here. But other than that, it's a it's a great location. We're talking about Minnesota politics this hour. Later, we'll talk to the crew of our NPR news reporters who are covering this year's campaign. But first, I'm joined on the stage by the person who oversees elections in Minnesota. Secretary of State Steve Simon is a DFLer. He's Thank a, you. He's a former, for having me. former state representative seeking a third it. term this year. Well, thanks for coming on. Uh, are you a big state fair guy when you're not I'm out here I'm a huge, campaigning? massive, obsessive state fair guy. In fact, I have missed one state fair since 1977. Wow. And that was only because I was working out of the state that summer. Other than that, I have an unbroken streak. I love it. I live for it. It's fantastic. What's your favorite thing to do out here? Eat. Oh, I thought it was interviews on the radio. Yeah, eat and also uh, bring my kids. Now that they're old enough, I got two little kids and they are getting into it. So I get to view the fair through their eyes, which is really cool. A turnout, voter turnout for the primary election was a little higher than you originally uh, pegged it at. I think about 18%. Why do you suppose that was? It's really interesting. Um, It was particularly high because when you look at the best apples-to-apples comparison, which would have been 2018, the last non-presidential year, in that year, as some of your listeners will remember, both the DFL and the Republican parties had pretty hot primaries in the governor's race. This year, not at all in the governor's race. It was pretty much settled. Uh, Dr. Jensen and Governor Walls. 
Uh, but there were some other hot contests at other levels of the ballot. For example, the 5th Congressional District, there was a primary. Uh, there was a primary and a special election in the 1st Congressional District. So for those reasons and probably others, people really did show up in greater numbers than I and others had expected, which is a good thing. One thing they didn't do, like they did a couple of years ago, was vote early. That Those right. numbers were down. Do you expect right. that in the general election, too? I do, probably. I mean, I think there was a big spike in voting absentee or voting from home, a huge spike in 2020 for all the obvious natural reasons. It was COVID. It was pre-vaccine COVID, remember. There was a lot of fear and anxiety and uncertainty. So 58% of Minnesotans, a pretty big majority, voted from home or otherwise by absentee in 2020. That's one of the things that really saved the election from a health standpoint. This year, we're in a different kind of era. We're in the post-vaccine era. There's less fear, less anxiety, less uncertainty. So I expect that number to go down. But I don't think it's going to go back to where we were before COVID. I think it's going to be somewhere in between. So what does that mean? I would say if I had to wager, I'd say reliably one-third or more of voters will probably choose to vote that way. But it's a choice, and you can go back and forth. My wife and I, in 2020, we voted um, from home. We wanted to lead by example, and it was a safe thing to do. But the minute we could go back to a polling place, we went back because we love the election judges and saying hi and the vibe you get on election day. So I'm going to continue to do that. Okay, remind us, when does early voting start for the general election and, and some of the rules around that? Yeah, it starts three weeks from today, September 23rd. That's 46 days before the election. And the rules are, if you're an eligible voter in Minnesota, you can order the ballot to come to you at home if you wish, or you can vote early by going to a local government office. It's either a county office or city office, depending on where you live. And I quick plug here, our office's website can provide information about that. It's mnvotes.gov, mnvotes.gov. That's the place where you can find out where to vote on election day. And keep in mind, we're in a redistricting year. So in many cases, including ours, mine, my polling place changed. Yours might have too. You can also find out what or who is on your ballot there. And you can find out uh, how to order a ballot. You can even register to vote at that website, mnvotes.gov. And I assume if you're actually going to be out of the country or out of your precinct on election day, you can get your absentee ballot for that, too. That's the way it used to work. That's right. That's exactly right. And we have a lot of Minnesotans overseas, whether they're in the military or they're missionaries or diplomats or business people or exchange students. So that's a big deal to those folks. And will there be any special accommodations this time as there were in 2020? No, not of the kind that I think you mean. Uh, that were due to the fact that we were in the pre-vaccine era. No, there's been no litigation that I know of um, seeking that kind of um, outcome. And so, no, we've really snapped back to what we've been used to for years and decades, pretty much across the board. All right, let's zoom out a little bit then. Are Minnesota's elections fair? Yes. Why are they fair? What about all the people who say they're not? Well, look, they are fundamentally fair accurate, honest, and secure. And we know that in part because of what we went through in 2020. I think most people would say 2020 was the most watched, followed, litigated election in American history across the board, including in Minnesota. At one point, there were 27 live lawsuits in Minnesota that were election-related at the same time. There were more than 27 total, but at one slice in time, at one day, there were 27 at the same time. That's a lot. 
whether it was on the left or the right or Democrats or Republicans. And so there were a lot of eyeballs. There was a lot of scrutiny. And as has happened time and time and time again, Minnesotans didn't just survive. They thrived in the 2020 election, so much so that for the third time in a row, third time in a row, Minnesota was number one in America in voter turnout, even though we were in a pandemic. So as to the integrity of the election, we're really fortunate. In Minnesota, we have laws in place put there by both Democrats and Republicans, which really ensure transparency and accountability at multiple layers and levels. At the county, city, and township level, our office then reviews that work. It's all done in public view and public hearings. There's broad public access. And the proof is in the numbers, not just the turnout, but what the turnout says about people's ultimate confidence in the system. They wouldn't show up at close to 80% voter turnout, I'd say, as a matter of common sense, unless they really did know in their gut that it was honest, that it was secure, and that it was a system run with integrity by your friends and neighbors, by the way. The people who count the votes are not our office. We never lay a glove on a ballot. That all happens in cities and townships and counties, your friends and neighbors doing that job as election judges and other workers. So it's tried and true in Minnesota, and I think the public knows that it's a secure and honest system. Your Republican opponent, Kim Crockett, and I'll say we invited Kim Crockett to come on. Uh, She couldn't make it today. We hope to have her on before uh, the election. Uh, She told the Star Tribune this week that the 2020 election was rigged. How do you respond to that? Well, I think that's bizarre and irresponsible and foolish uh, to use language like that. Um, It's that kind of language that usually comes from a place of conspiracy theory, not just doubt, not just skepticism. Every citizen should uh, ask tough questions of their government, anyone who's government. We want that. We welcome that. But this is something different. The idea that there was rigging or fixing or something like that, you know, don't just take my word for it. Look at the former attorney general of the United States. Uh, appointed by the prior president, or the current FBI director appointed by the prior president, or the 60-some-odd federal and state judges of all political persuasions appointed by all manner of presidents and governors, including the former president, when presented with allegations of misconduct or wrongdoing. So up and down, top to bottom, uh, things have been vetted quite closely. And to use language like that is um, foolish increasingly bizarre because this conspiracy theory is not only the ones that she talks about, whether it's postal workers being in on the rigging or, uh, you know, misuse of COVID or whatever else it is, it's hard to keep track. That's just irresponsible and foolish, particularly for someone seeking this office. This is an office where the holder of the office, I don't care what party, has to be fair, has to be impartial, has to leave their politics at the door when they go into work. That's been our tradition. And I think those kind of comments, again, foolish, bizarre, and irresponsible. She uh, did say that so many people are mistrustful of elections, and we've seen that. I mean, Crow Wing County, there's all kinds of stuff going on up there. Yep. Um, why do you think so many people are mistrustful? Well, I, I, it's a little uh, ironic to me. It's sort of like the arsonist um, expressing concern about the fire. Some of the reason that some folks have a mistrust is because of this cloud of disinformation. Orchestrated, coordinated disinformation from national political figures and others designed, designed to corrode well-earned faith in our democracy, not just nationally, but in Minnesota. Again, skepticism we want. Tough questions we want, always. That's, I hope we never lose that as a country. But to engage in conspiratorial thinking like that 
and to intentionally spread it to good folks, some of whom have bought into some of this, is wrong. It's just plain wrong, and it's not our Minnesota tradition. Question all you want, of course, but when you start spinning theories about postal workers in on the rigging, rigging of an election, that stuff is just bizarre and disqualifying. So, and I would say this, um, I, I'll just repeat, we had just shy of 80% voter turnout, number one in the country for the third time in a row. Um, I got to push back on the premise that a ton of people, I think it's a small, dedicated, zealous slice, um, think the system is, as my opponent says, rigged. That does not represent Minnesota. That's a very small, thin slice of voters. Most people uh, demonstrate their confidence in the system by showing up to vote. That's not to say there aren't good, wise, honest, ethical people who have a different opinion than I do. There are. And I welcome that debate. I'm not talking about difference in policy, but I think people know in their gut, know in their heart, it's an honest system fundamentally, and that's why they show up in Minnesota year after year after year. And so just to be clear, you're not saying that voter fraud doesn't happen. Correct. You're just saying it's not widespread and it's yeah. not affecting the right. outcome. It's a microscopic problem, really microscopic. And let me give you the numbers that we unearthed just a couple uh, weeks ago, and these are all of public record. Since the November 2020 election... Since November 2020, we're going on two years now, a year and nine months, there have been 16 cases, 16, one six, in Minnesota of proven uh, misconduct that's voting-based. And some of those were attempt crimes, meaning they didn't even do the thing. They just attempted to do the bad things. So they didn't even do it. So, look, that's 16 too many. We all want it to be zero. I do. Everyone listening does. But the point is, when you zoom out a little bit and put this in perspective, we got a state of 5.7 million people. We had 3.3 million voting last time. 16 is a microscopic number, and that's because we have checks and balances at every level to ensure that it is uh, easy to vote and hard to cheat. Uh, one thing your opponent says, uh, if, if some people are mistrusting of elections, why not just require people to show a photo ID when they vote? Yeah. Wouldn't that... Wouldn't that uh, increase confidence among everybody. Well, What's here's the thing I say about that. Yeah, and I totally understand the, the surface appeal of that. Remember, 10 years ago, Minnesota voted on that. We, the people, voted on that. And by a not tiny margin, we said, no thanks. And the reason was, despite the surface appeal of that argument, and I acknowledge it, absolutely. I understand someone saying, hey, you know, why should I, I have to show ID for other things? Why not this? That's, that's absolutely a reasonable thing to, to say. But this is an example of the more you look, the less you like. And, and the analogy I sometimes use is, look, every doctor, every nurse, every day has to make judgments about whether the proposed cure is worse than the disease. I just told you we had 16 people. Are you going to take the risk, and it is a big risk, that you could, inadvertently or otherwise, shut out 16,000 or 160,000 people who are eligible Minnesota voters but may not be able to comply? So... That's where I am on that, and the Minnesota, uh, the voters of Minnesota, at least in recent history, seem to have backed up that viewpoint. What about shortening the amount of time for early voting? Is, is that something you would support? No, I wouldn't. Uh, I was there at the signing ceremony. I was in the legislature at the time when that was signed. We used to be 30 days. We moved it to 46, so it was already pretty substantial. And that was Governor Tim Pawlenty, a Republican. I'm a Democrat. He's a Republican. And I was at the signing ceremony, and he and others embraced that because it further accommodated particularly our overseas folks, people in the military, students, business people, missionaries, diplomats, and the like. And I think it's the right thing to do. Give people the access. You know, the reality is that the vast majority of people who do vote absentee 
vote in that last week, very, very few people vote on day minus 46 and day minus 45 and day minus 44, and that's human nature. Most folks want to wait till the end, get all the information, watch the debates, look at the ads, read up, do their own research. And, and the reality is it's there as an accommodation to people who need it or want it, but really in the everyday world, most people vote in those closing days. What's your top priority if you win another term? I think it's three things. One is continuing to protect and expand the freedom to vote in Minnesota. Another one is just defending our democracy against those who might want to weaken it. And then a final one would be pushing back against the dangerous disinformation that could, if unchecked, really corrode that well-earned faith in our democracy. Those are the three buckets that I think of uh, in terms of my priorities going forward. That's Steve Simon. He's Minnesota's Secretary of State. He's a DFLer seeking a third term this year. Thanks so much for coming by, Thank joining you. us at the State Fair. Thank you hope, so much. I, I love hope it. we'll talk again before the election. I'd love that. Thanks for having me on. Programming supported by Cub Pharmacy committed to providing your family high-quality and trusted pharmacy services and convenient in-store health programs to support your healthy living. Prescription refills on the Cub app and delivery also available. Cub.com. This is NPR News. We're live from the Minnesota State Fair today. I'm Mike Mulcahy. We're talking about politics this hour. Where better to do that, as there have been a bunch of politicians here this week trying to convince fairgoers to vote for them or to vote against their opponent. We're going to close out this hour of the program by talking to our all-star team of NPR political reporters. A couple of familiar faces to longtime listeners. Brian Bax is here. Mark Zadeklik there on the end. And a fresh face and a new voice, the newest member of our team, Dana Ferguson. Thanks, guys. Thanks all for being here. Dana, let me start with you and give you a chance to introduce yourself to the audience. You're new to NPR News, but you're not new to covering Minnesota politics. Tell us a little bit about what you've been doing and before you came to work for NPR. Sure. Well, for folks who don't know me yet, it's my second week uh, working for NPR, so thank you all for having me. Um, Prior to joining NPR News, I worked for the Forum News Service at the Capitol, so writing for Greater Minnesota Newspapers, so pretty familiar with Minnesota state government and politics, but excited to be working for NPR now. We're so happy to have you. Thanks. Uh, Let me start with... uh An old sort of saying about elections is that people really don't start paying attention until after Labor Day. That's when summer vacation is over. That's when the kids are back to school. This one seems like it's been going on for a while, and it seems like people are pretty tuned in. Brian Baxter, what do you think about that? Well, we've been through a very engaged political, I guess, decade, almost a decade by now with, with the Trump era and then the aftermath of Trump and Trump again. He's kind of keeping people sucked into politics, and there's, you see a lot of the, the candidates either trying to emulate or criticize or, or work off each other based on where they are on former President Trump. Uh, but, the, but the state fair is kind of this, this testing ground, this proving ground where candidates have to deal with, uh, get to deal with constituents coming up to them and asking them questions, poking and prodding, sometimes criticizing them. 
And then from here on out, they're mostly going to be a distance campaign, you know, things they see over the air. Scott Jensen says he's going to go up on TV on September 7th, which is a new uh, detail we learned today. Governor Walsh has been up on TV since July, so people are going to get a heavy dose of politics from here on out. Mark Zedeklik, what do you think? Uh, How engaged are the voters right now? I would agree with what Brian said. I think the, the Trump era and arguably the pandemic has more people, has left people more interested in getting involved with politics. And it, it, as a reporter, we hear much more criticism and uh, positive comments as well uh, from people who are just much more engaged than they typically have been. And I think you can largely thank Donald Trump for that. Dana, how about you? What, what, what have people, how have people struck you as you've been talking to him here at the fair? I think folks are really engaged in a lot of the issues. The one that I would add to those that we've brought up here beyond the former president, beyond the pandemic, um, the Supreme Court's decision overturning Roe v. Wade has been a big driving issue for a lot of folks out here at the fair, both pro-abortion access and anti-abortion access. Folks are really fired up about that. Um, Other issues I've been hearing a whole lot about, energy independence, folks have strong opinions about the governor's executive powers and whether those should be allowed to continue with this governor and the next governor. Um, And then just pocketbook issues, hearing a lot about inflation as well as about crime, especially in the Twin Cities. So everybody has a driving issue and they're not too afraid to talk about it. Brian, what about you? Does that sound like some of the things you've been hearing? Absolutely. But, you know, at the State Fair, it's kind of its own little world. People are spending a lot of money on on food. They're spending a lot of money on little gadgets. So the inflation thing, it it does sink in, but it just seems a little bit distant from the daily life. Uh, The the candidates, uh, I I ran into Jim Schultz today, who's running for the attorney general, and he says people are talking a lot about crime, as Dana mentioned to him. Uh, He's got this very intense race with President Attorney General Keith Ellison. It's a head-to-head race. One factor there, no Republican has gotten more than 50% of the vote since 1994. So watch that. I mean, this Minnesota is a purple state, but Democrats have typically done better in Minnesota. They haven't lost a statewide election since 2006. This could be a year where that's that's tested. For sure. Um, Let let me go back to the Roe versus Wade uh, decision. Uh, How much of a difference has that made? Mark Zedeklik, do you think in... in, uh, getting people interested in the campaign or or at least paying attention? Well, I was with Senator Klobuchar here on day one of the fair, and we popped into the Seed Art building, and there's a piece there that addresses the abortion issue following the Roe v. Wade uh, reversal overturn. And Senator Klobuchar said that it's a huge issue and that people are coming up to her that are not necessarily sharing personal stories and that kind of thing, but just saying how they feel about it. And she thinks, from her perspective, that people think it just goes too far. That's bringing people out. Congresswoman Angie Craig, the Democrat who represents the 2nd District, told me early on after that decision came down that she was inundated with volunteers who wanted to, to work for her campaign. So Democrats are very, very hopeful that that's energizing their base, and they say it is, and I have every reason to believe that, because it's such a big issue. And we should mention Senator Klobuchar isn't on the ballot this year. No, she's not, but she's a party leader, and she's obviously campaigning for for everybody else. 
Brian, what about these candidates for governor, uh, Tim Walls and Scott Jensen? Uh, what about their approaches here at the fair, and what does that say about the rest of the campaign? Yeah, obviously you've seen a far different style of campaigning here. You see Scott Jensen posting up for hours a day at his booth. He's generally got people coming up to him, some people who are clearly supporters, some people who are just curious about where he's at. Governor Wallace has been out here several days, most days in fact, but he pops around from place to place, visits booths, uh, makes proclamations, and, and does radio and TV interviews that are scheduled. It's, it's, it's a more controlled environment. He's not, he's not standing in front of his booth for hours at a time, as Scott Jensen is. But he's the incumbent. People know him. People don't uh, need to size him up as much. They either like him or they don't. And, and he's got a lot of money. You're going to be seeing a lot of campaign ads from him, half a million dollars a week starting in September. So, I mean, there's going to be no shortage of, of him in your living room. Scott Jensen is still introducing himself to folks. A lot of people don't know who he is or what he stands for, and this is his big chance to make an impression. Dana, do you think it's working for Scott Jensen here at the fair? I think more people are getting to know him. Uh, certainly people are going up. We spent a fair amount of time just watching his booth, shadowing him a little bit this week. And folks either knew him and really had strong things to say. They went up, they prayed with him, they shouted out things they thought he was doing well or things they didn't like about Governor Walls. And then some newer folks got a chance to see, you know, what are the proposals you're putting out there? Um, what can you tell me about yourself? So it's something. Certainly not everybody in Minnesota goes to the fair. A lot of people do. Um, but it gets him out there a little bit. Will it be enough to get his name recognition up in a big way? It's hard to say at this point. And, of course, we were hoping to have a debate with the candidates here today, and uh, we invited both of them. Jensen accepted. Walls didn't. Uh, and Jensen is really hitting on that. Do you think most people really care about how many times they debate or whether they debate? I think people do want to see them side by side. And, and I think uh, Scott Jensen, his point is that Minnesotans are in increasing numbers, some due to the pandemic and just naturally voting earlier. And he's worried about having a lot of votes in the bank. But there's still a whole lot of people who are going to wait and show up on Election Day. And there's still going to be undecided voters who are going to be making up their mind based on what they hear once they see those two side by side. And Dana, uh, what do you think? Do people care that much about the debates? I might be jaded, but I don't think they care that much. As long as they get a few chances to see them side by side, I don't know that the timing matters all that much. And talking to voters out here, I think people really do have pretty deep set opinions already. So there are folks in the middle, but arguably not that many. Okay. Let me uh, just remind everybody we're talking this hour from the big stage here at the State Fair with uh, NPR's political reporting team. That's Dana Ferguson, the newest member of the team. Brian Baxt is here, and Mark Zadeklik as well. Mark, uh, you've been covering some of the congressional campaigns. It seems like, as opposed to the past, oh, few years, not quite as many competitive races in Minnesota this time. Is that how you see it? It is, but it's actually kind of more normal this cycle than it was certainly in 2018. We had an extraordinary circumstance of two open seats Two of the eight seats were open, so they were very uh, highly contested, hotly contested, and uh, there was another seat that ended up flipping to Democrats that was a, you know, a big campaign. So we really had our plate full of congressional uh, campaigns, competitive campaigns, right. I should say. Uh, this year, 
there is one absolutely competitive campaign, and that is in the second district where DFLer Angie Craig is facing a rematch challenge from Republican Tyler Kistner. That is a race that is being watched nationally, and we're certainly keeping a, a, an eye on that. Some people don't realize that most congressional districts are pretty solidly Republican or pretty solidly Democrat. So when you have a swing district, those are the races that, that the parties and the funders focus on. And that's certainly the case in the second district. There is an interesting race in the first district where people remember that uh, Republican Congressman Jim Hagedorn uh, passed away earlier this year. That set up a special election, essentially an open seat special election. And now the, uh, the gentleman who ran the special election, Congressman Fenstad, Brad Fenstad, will face his DFL challenger, Jeff Edinger, in November. And we're watching that, too, just to see how much uh, energy Democrats might have in that southern Minnesota district. It seems like, uh, as you say, the districts have become more solidly partisan. It seems like people have become more solidly partisan. Is that, uh, Brian, is that the way you see it, or... Or am I just uh, too close to it? Uh, you don't see, as Dana mentioned, that that middle, those those true independents, that's a, that's a shrinking block. People have kind of fallen into one camp or the other or at least been pretty close to one camp or, or another. And, and you've seen that in election after election, particularly in Minnesota. Uh, and, and you might be able to hear the, the warm-up act over at the grandstand nearby. That's kind of what we're, the, the booming in the background. But uh, in, particularly in the legislature, in the legislature, you, you've seen it swing back and forth uh, between the House and the Senate a couple times, um, and and we might see a, a divided government come out of the legislature once again. It's just based on the fact that that there aren't many districts that are truly in play, and and each side has a certain amount that they can count on. And that's why those competitive districts draw so much money, and why we'll be seeing so much. Uh, as Mark mentioned, so many commercials probably from the second district candidates this fall. And another thing to keep in mind is that the base of each side is maybe, you guys challenge me on this if I'm wrong, but maybe 30, 35 percent. And you can't win an election just by rallying your base. You've got to appeal to people that are possibly interested in both sides and, and willing to go back and forth. And I still think they're a factor, and those are the people that the campaigns uh, have a huge amount of focus on. Of course they want to rally the base to get them out because they can't afford to have their own supporters not cast ballots, but a big push is to get people who are kind of in the middle, well, what way might, how might I persuade that person to, to go on my side, even though they may have been on a different side in previous elections? Dana, do you think that's as much of a factor in one of these midterm elections where sometimes they do end up being sort of the true believers who get out to vote? It can be a big factor if you don't have that big race at the top of the ballot. Um, it's your core audience who's going to come out, support you, and possibly put you over the edge or fail you. So those middle-tier people, maybe not as important. You're counting on your base a little bit more, and maybe that's why we're hearing from candidates a lot of those base-positive messages at this point. And, and earlier in this campaign, you were hearing a lot about an enthusiasm gap. Republicans mm -hmm. are really energized because they're, they don't have the White House, they don't have either Chamber of Commerce, Congress, and so they were really motivated to, to get their people out and, and oppose what's going on. This time, 
you know, the, the, the enthusiasm gap has changed partly because of that Supreme Court decision that Dana mentioned, partly because, you know, Joe Biden is trying to draw it into a choice election between him and his philosophy and Donald Trump's philosophy. You're hearing a lot, him talk a lot more about Donald Trump these days. Hmm. It's, it's not by accident. They really want to make this into a more of a choice election than a referendum election on his policies. We're talking with our NPR political reporters. That's Brian Bax. Dana Ferguson is here, as is Mark Zedeklik. We're live at the Minnesota State Fair on the big stage at Dan Patch Park. I want to ask you folks about uh, what is typically the big driver for voters, which I think is the economy. Earlier in the year, we heard inflation, high gas prices, there was a lot of energy among the Republicans about those issues because they really thought, as Brian said, it would be a referendum on Joe Biden and, uh, and it would drive a lot of Republicans or a lot of people who voted for Biden last time out to, to vote for Republicans this time. On the other hand, as an economist would say, if there were one here, we have this odd uh, thing where jobs keep getting created. Just this morning, 315,000 jobs nationally last month. Um, You know, some people were speculating there was a recession, but it sure doesn't seem like a recession or at least a typical one. So uh, here in Minnesota, 1.8% unemployment, which is unheard of. Um, Which one of these trends do you think is stronger? Will this be a wash or how does this play out? Um, Mark, let's go to you. I I think inflation's huge. And to the extent that wages have increased, they've not kept up with inflation. And right or wrong, you know, economists will tell you that this doesn't have anything to do with the current administration or, or, or whatever current administration, barring some major glitch or something like that. But when people are having a hard time just making ends meet, they're going to be more receptive naturally to a message that says, hey, I'm going to change this and you're not going to have to pay these prices at the gas pump or the grocery store. Democrats have their job cut out for them to try to explain and remind people that, hey, we've been through a pandemic. We've been through a supply chain crisis and we're, we're just kind of regrouping and coming out of that. But that's a tough sell to make to somebody who's not necessarily interested in diving in deep. So I think the inflation is, is a much bigger deal than a, than a low unemployment rate. That's where I sit on it. Uh, Dana Ferguson, you want to take a swing at that? I would say, too, that things can change in the next couple of months, and if things continue to improve... Uh, I know a lot of folks who are really excited that they're not going to have to pay student loans, that that got wiped away, that gas prices are getting better. So if some of those trends continue, if people feel a little bit more confident um, in their pocketbook, that they're doing well enough to get by, maybe they'll forget about some of those inflationary pressures that were there toward the beginning of the year. Um, But we've got a few months before we know for sure just how people are going to feel on election day and who they're going to be looking at in a more positive light. Brian, any thoughts on that one? Well, what you're hitting on is the macro economy versus the personal economy. You're going to hear Democrats talking a lot about this macro economy. Things are, despite all we've been through in the last two years, things are on the right track. Republicans are going to point to the micro economy. How much is it? How much has these have these gas prices cost your family over the summer? How much does it cost you to go to the grocery store? So you're going to hear competing messages, and so both things can be right at the same time. The economy can be strong. But people will feel like the economy is weak, and that's why you're hearing these 
two different approaches coming into election campaign season. Mark. And another thing that's unique that's playing out this year is we haven't had some a group of people storm the Capitol uh, previously. And I think that some of the voters I'm speaking with, certainly many of the candidates I speak with on the Democratic side, say they think voters are looking a little bit past our current problems to the future of the democracy and that that's weighing on some people in a way that it just hasn't before because we just haven't seen something like that. And it arguably just keeps getting kind of worse for Republicans on that side with what's going on with the former president and documents. And uh, that's an issue for many people. And Democrats are hoping that, coupled with the uh, abortion ruling, and some, some other things will help them buck the trend, which is for the party in the White House to do poorly in congressional elections in the midterms. Well, President Biden sh- certainly tried to uh, make that point last night when he gave that speech, which I don't know if many people watched it. I don't know if many people, certainly the people he was uh, talking about were listening to him. Uh, Brian, what do you think about that as a sort of election issue to and particularly Biden's role in trying to make that an issue. It seems like it's kind of a tough a tough role for him to play. Well, he campaigned as being this great uniter and this guy who's going to kind of get get the America past its divisions and now he's he's pointing out the divisions more often because he feels like that needs to be said just to make people aware of how fragile things might be at any particular point because January 6th because of uh, the continuing questions over election integrity and election fairness. Uh, I I think Democrats want to hear him make this point, and he feels like that's that's the audience he needs to really motivate right now to try to stem some of these losses. Well, let's uh, turn back to state issues. Uh, The legislature went home without doing a lot of work on that big surplus, $9 billion of well, I guess they spend a little, so it's not quite that much anymore. But, Dana, is there any chance the legislature would do a special session before its regular session in January? Well, we heard some rumblings this week that there could be a small special session coming up, particularly around the issue of a bonding bill. Um, that was sort of the one thing they were expected to get done this year. As you mentioned, they failed to do so. So House Speaker Melissa Hortman and House Minority Leader Kurt Doubt told me that they're open to it, they're working on it, and they think it's possible. Uh, The issue that they face is that Senate Majority Leader Jeremy Miller is still saying he wants a big tax bill, uh, which would include a lot of money going back to the people if they're going to come back for a special session, and Democrats are not open to that at all. Brian Bax, let me ask you a really easy question here with about uh, less than a minute to go. How does each side win here in the governor's race? <laughs> well, uh, Tim Walls is probably going to have more problems than he did last time in rural Minnesota. So he's got to really amp up the turnout and the votes in the Twin Cities and the surrounding suburbs. Scott Jensen can't lose as poorly in those suburbs and the, in the cities. He's going to do pretty well probably in greater Minnesota. So the suburbs are kind of the linchpin for, for both campaigns. Well, I know you you three will keep an eye on it as we go here, and I want to thank you so much for coming by today. Mark Zedeklik, Dana Ferguson, Brian Baxt, NPR's political reporting team, thanks so much for being here during the State Fair. 
That will just about do it for us this Friday at the fair. Our producer today was Jeff Jones. We'll be back later this month and then every Friday at noon, right on up to the election. I'm Mike Mulcahy. Thanks for being here. Thanks for listening. Have a great Labor Day weekend. We'll see you again soon.